Pod. I'm Lauren. And I am Nicholas. And today we're going to talk about some awesome, awesome stuff that's really close to me because we're going to talk about how can you be objective when you're really sentimental and attached to a video game that you love. Yeah, we're going to talk about the feels. How to do all with of the feels. the feels today. And this is directly because of the chill rant we just posted last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes, please go ahead and go over there and give it a listen because Nicholas got super sentimental because he loves this game so much and was putting off recording it. So Nicholas, take us away. Why were you putting off recording it? I was putting off recording it because I was too attached and I have this problem as someone who spends most of his life doing things in sort of like an analytical mode where maybe it's just a hang up of mine, but I, I, I do seriously believe that it's much harder to be sort of like critical and analytical about something if you have some sort of emotional attachment to it. And, you know, Takeshi and Hiroshi is not a super amazing game, but because of the circumstances in which I played it, especially playing it with my daughter and like all the stuff that we did together as a result, um, the way in which the game itself sort of reflects how like creating a game forges emotional bonds between people, like, I'm, I'm welling up literally as I'm trying to describe this. And so it's much harder for me to then approach it and say like, okay, what is this game doing? Like, how do we, like, what is, what is useful about it for someone who doesn't have that kind of emotional attachment? And so for me, I think that's where the hangup comes from. Cause it's like, yeah, if I'm really into something, it's really easy to convince somebody else who is also really into it or sort of have some sort of like affective reaction to it. But if you're trying to discuss it with someone who doesn't have that, like they'll just tune out because it's like, okay, yeah, that's just your feelings. I don't know if I don't know if that's true, because I mean, like I get really attached to say like Dragon Age Inquisition, for example, and I'm very sentimental about that game. I know this. (laughs) Right. And I can see I can see you welling up. And I think when I talk to people who are Dragon Age Inquisition fans, it's very different, right? We're all just kind of screaming at each other on yeah. Twitter specifically because um, the Dragon Age community is very strong on Twitter. Yeah, The Dragon Age is strong with the Twitters. And I think that 
when I tell people about it who aren't into it, I've had to convince so many of my friends to play Dragon Age Inquisition that when I finally convinced my significant other to play it, I realized that without any of the sentimentality or feelings that I had from having played this series since its origins, um, he, he just didn't get into it. Like he played it like a game. And I, I say it like that because it's like, Oh, you don't have any of the feelings or right. Relatability that I was bringing into it because you're not me. You don't have my experience. Yeah. So you're not going to play it with like weight, right? With that baggage that I kind of brought to my Inquisition experience. On the flip side though, I then was able to relate when he was like streaming it or he'd come over and play it uh, very like irregularly during COVID because this was a COVID game. This was a, you stream on Discord or whatever. And like, I just watch you because we can't be together. Yeah. (laughs) Yay. Um, And for me, like, curiously i was like oh he did choose what i chose but for different reasons i didn't realize you could do that oh he chose something that i would never in my life ever choose but because he didn't have any of the baggage so he didn't realize that the weight of his choice was really really heavy yeah and then of course in like a very fantastic moment i'm not going to spoil he felt all of the same pain that i felt when something very key happens because regardless of if you brought that into it you didn't have it so I like you would always yeah. have that experience. Like it was just so d- well designed that even if you didn't have this past history. Um, so I've been looking forward to playing Takeshi and Hiroshi. And I personally just haven't been because to play a new game, knowing that your friend has played it takes, yeah. I, I kind of now have that filter. I have that. Okay. I need to really give my time and dedicated energy to the game, not yeah. just like throw it on. Right. So, I mean, this in many ways, this is analogous to the the conflict, not the conflict, but sort of the 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 argument that you and I had with each other about like life is strange, where you were just like, "Eh." and I thought it was one of the like most emotionally arresting games like in existence. And I can't necessarily I mean, in the case of Takeshi and Hiroshi, I can I can explain why, because it has all of these like connections to, you know, real life relationships that I have. I'm also I don't just have like a close relationship with my daughter. I also have a fraught relationship with her because I'm very protective of her for god damn it. I mean, you're a dad, right? No, like, no it's, it's more than that. It's like it's not just being a dad. I'm more than a dad. I'm no, 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 no. Not, not an ultra no, dad. I, I no. know I get it. I get it's, it. It's more that like because of the uh the difficulties she has had and sort of like the fights that I've had to get into on her behalf. I'm I'm literally welling up right now. It's like it's hard for me to like anything that then taps into that like emotional connection. It doesn't even necessarily have to do it perfectly. It just, ha- it can do it like just sort of all it has to do is just scratch it. And like, I turn into a blubbery little baby. I mean, a good example of this is like, there's this one episode of the show fringe, which I don't think is a particularly great show, but because of the like content of the episode and the way in which it deals with sort of like problematic relationships between this one character, Astrid, or, and this like alternate universe version of Astrid and her father, like it's just, it, it just scratches it. And then the, the second it scratches that sort of connection, like I, I can't be sort of like, I guess you could say intellectually responsible, responsible, responsible about describing it because 
as you said, there's a there's a weight there. there. There's sort of like there's there's this like almost like a sort of Damocles that's sort of hanging over you the entire time. But do you feel that like the Damocles that's hanging over you is it impossible to separate yourself from that, or in another way of like in another phrase or in another vein, what's wrong with bringing that emotional like side of it because it's a video game, right? It's yeah. an interactive experience. What's wrong with bringing that emotional side to write an objective argument playing field? Like, don't think of mm. that. Think of this as an academic, right? Yeah, yeah. Think of it as like an actual, you know, you're just sitting on the floor at a convention. That's never going to happen again. Uh, <laughs> it will, I think you know, it will at some point. But it yeah. will at some point. So yeah. 10 years from now, you're sitting on the floor <laughs> of a convention, yeah. right? Eating garbage pizza or like I do, not eating pizza and literally surviving just on coffee and water somehow for like 12 hours. Which is terrible because most venues now have really nice vegetarian food. So if you want to like, you know, like keep your energy up, you know, get all your vitamins and minerals, you get like a nice falafel, you know, get some hummus, get some veggies, like, hey, you know. It's... Yeah, pro tip, whenever conventions open again, get all the veggie options. Yeah, eat well. Um, <laughs> eat well. You'll, you'll feel better, but you're sitting. So you're sitting there, right, yeah. in your, your veggie circle, yeah. um, not eating the bad con pizza. Like, and you're talking about your emotional experiences and you're about to go into like write a panel about like the best emotional video games of all time or something. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're going to go into that going like none of those made me emotional. Like how dare they say Uncharted was an emotional experience because it was just, it was like emotional, but like I didn't feel anything. How dare yeah. they not talk about Takeshi and Hiroshi, right? Like you're going to be feeling yeah. all these thoughts, right? Or they'll bring up Life is Strange because that's the one everybody brings up. And then, yeah, you know, is, yeah. I'll be like, eh, right? So what's wrong though with bringing well, no, But here's it? the thing. So actually let's go back to the example of life is strange. It's like, because what I noticed is that when I set aside my like affective reaction to that game, it was easier for me to see the points that you were making about it. The problem with being overly emotional about these sorts of things or overly sentimental is that it can, it can cause you to not hear things that are perfectly valid. And I notice this all the time in my classes. So I've, I've spoken about this in the past. Like, you know, I teach popular Japanese media in a lot of my courses. And so I often have students who come in with certain preconceptions and attachments to the things that I'm going to talk about and maybe not shed a terribly great light on. A good example of this is Miyazaki. I'm very critical of Miyazaki, but a lot of my students are just Miyazaki like diehards. And so I know that when I teach Princess Mononoke later in this term, that I'm going to be at loggerheads with them because I'm essentially going to try and argue, and I know this because it's literally written on the syllabus, that Miyazaki is an eco-fascist. And I, I know what the argument is, and I know all the particulars because you know I've literally written articles about this. And I know how my students are going to react to that. Some of them are going to start to understand what I'm saying, but they're going to resist it. And so I really need to read all those articles. Yeah. So if you can set your like those sort of like really like incredibly powerful emotional reactions aside, you can start to see things even about the stuff that you love that are actually valid. Because the thing is not nothing that nothing that we love is perfect. I'm there... honestly trying to imagine for myself, like the last time that I was like very emotional or sentimental about something yeah well i know what it is for me but but the thing is like no i mean to, to use your dragon age because the thing is you you made me play it 
Yeah, I made and... you play it. I am very good at objectively telling you all of the reasons, right, <laughs> yeah. that rationally yes. you should play this game, right? And I and, and I think and, they were all correct. They were all yeah. correct. Yeah. Uh, but the but the difference is but like but, I can't sorry. emotionally appeal to you. <laughs> That's it. That was all I was gonna say. <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. Not not just because. Well, the thing is, y- you can because we're friends and like we we have sort of a longstanding connection. But it has to be done in a different way. Like, the the it, general, it, the general you. Yeah. I I feel yeah. that when I appeal to your rational thought, that's a lot easier. But if I appeal to your like emotional thought, that's usually what converts people, right? Yes. And that, and that is the major difference is that like, because the thing is we tend to think of so-called rational thoughts and feelings as somehow like they're in two completely separate categories, but they're not. People, I mean, and you see this in conspiracy theories all the time, like people construct really elaborate, really convoluted, really sort of like well-reasoned, even if kind of silly, um, like structures for things that happen in society because they have, it has a certain like affective quality for them. It has a sort of connection to their life experiences and the way they feel about certain issues. And so the story has a kind of resonance for them, not just because it's logically coherent, because oftentimes conspiracy theories are log- like internally coherent. Um, they just don't necessarily reflect reality. Um, but what really sells a lot of people on those conspiracy theories is the fact that they validate the way they feel about something. So for example, like, you know, if in your life circumstances, you know, you're impoverished or you you feel like there is sort of this overwhelming like system that is bearing down on you. And there is a system that is bearing down on you. It's just called capitalism. But you don't necessarily want to believe that like you're powerless to change it. So if you construct this like elaborate fantasy that explains it for you, that give, then it sort of actually takes some of that emotional burden away because it's like, aha, I understand what's really going on. And even if I can't necessarily change it, it's like, I, I got you, I, I, I see you. And so those two things are completely bound up with each other. Like you can't actually separate them. So in many ways, what I'm trying to do in my, like in academic context, this sort of like false separation may not necessarily work. And so one thing that I think we should try and think about is like, is there a way to sort of stay in this sentimental mode and still be effectively analytical? That is a really good question. I honestly... I don't know if I am really just good at hot swapping my brain between the two, or if I'm constantly always operating on that like theta brainwave of, I really, really love something. Also, I can look at it very, very strangely analytically. Well, it's like, okay, so I've noticed that, uh, so there's, this is not game related. It's, it's, it has to do with the sort of the social media back and forth about WandaVision which like there are people who have oh these, so like, wandavision spoilers are about to come up probably i'm actually not going to talk about anything that happens i'm just going to talk about okay. sort of like the the fifty thousand foot level perspective so on the one hand you have like a lot of people on social media for whom what happens in the series has this like really that they, they 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 feel both an emotion they feel an emotional and sometimes like experiential connection to what happens to wanda's character and sort of like they see themselves either see themselves or see things in their life and what happens to her. But then on the other hand, you also have people pointing out, I think rather fairly that a lot of the dialogue is extremely trite. 
and a lot of the things in the in the series that sort of are put forward as like these really brilliant introspective moments if you actually think about what's being said it's like uh, it's kind of dumb to be honest i mean i would need like a very specific example so i really like the marvel cinematic universe um, I wouldn't say that I'm a fan because it's really hard to say I'm a fan of anything that's not Dragon Age. Um, I, I, I joke because of all of the things to be a fan of, I am a fan of, of Dragon Age, actually. Yeah. Um, but I struggle with my own fan identity, so that's a totally different topic. Yeah. But I will say that I really do like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I loved WandaVision because some of the dialogue was really, really well laid out, but it was honestly a treaty in saying that the things that people say don't necessarily all have to be the most amazing, well-written things, yeah, because that's yeah. not how people talk. No. And sometimes when you have these traumatic experiences in your life, the things that you say don't matter. It's getting over yeah. the trauma, or in other cases, it's just trying to get, right? It's the journey through it. So yeah. I really liked WandaVision because of the... Um, the logic battle uh, that was my favorite part to be honest because i love i love theory theory battling anytime yeah. you get that into a show i'm like yes get people back into the classics because i studied classic greek and a uh, hellenistic yeah. literature and, and ancient culture and magics which are three totally different things so, so and yeah, yeah so anyway so i'm just saying like as someone who from a high level perspective really loved that really loved every episode i really got into it versus i'm not sure how much i'm going to get into um falcon and the winter soldier right yeah. i feel like that's going to be a lot more actiony and i uh, how am i gonna protect the ones i love kind of thing yeah. <laughs> which eh, well to take this I'm... back into the um like the, the the video game world one of the things that i've noticed is that so you know if you look at what are some of the most popular or at least best-selling games of all time a lot of them are these like military focused like first person shooters which is a type of game that I don't enjoy. I would say those for successful, I would say those are the ones that have a like a mass appeal. Yeah. Right? That combine fun quick shooting mechanics, right? With instant reaction, high adrenaline rushes, right? High impact action sequences and a sense of progression and completion. See, that's the thing is that I don't think I, I understand what you're saying and I do actually agree, but I think there actually is something else. I think actually I'm sure there is an emotional connection actually. I just I'm just saying from a from an yeah. analytical perspective, let me say these things so yeah. that we can have them in the air. So that our listeners can understand that if you are an an analytical um I don't want to say rational thinker out there, but if you are an analytical rational thinker, when we talk about a franchise like Call of Duty, there are objective qualities of the Call of Duty series Absolutely, that yeah. make it a international phenomenon. Yeah. Now, let's go into the sentimental, and I can't talk about Call of Duty, but I can talk about Battlefield. Well, the thing is, okay, so it, for me, it, it doesn't necessarily even matter like which of them you're talking about. Like if you're talking about Rainbow Six or if you're talking about Splinter Cell, like it really doesn't matter because ultimately for me what the game is projecting is something that is common to a lot of even like just all forms of popular media especially for like an adolescent male audience which is this idea of sort of like the power fantasy because it's not just see because the thing is like the smoothness of the mechanics and the ability to sort of like and it's true in a game like quake as well where there really isn't sort of that ideological like u.s military underpinning to it it is sort of more it's more pure in the sense of being a, a i would i would shooter. put quake differently than what we see for modern titles quake was a title that was released what in the 19 
80s no late late 90s late 90s and the most that's true i did play quake so i will say that like but i played some old games as well and my brain is fuzzy because i played them beyond or before an age i should have well or the or the unreal games or halo or i mean so things like halo okay so keep talking i apologize for interrupting you please get your point across so in each of these games, you are this, well, okay, so the, you're almost this like blank figure. Um, and the reason why I've been thinking a lot about this, and Lauren knows this, is because I've been working on a very, very long essay, nearly book length essay about sort of the origins of the first person shooter and what it, the perspective entails. And for me, because the the figure that you inhabit is a conceptual blank, even when there is a literal character, even when you have like Master Chief, in the halo series like the fact that 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 is essentially like even though there is ostensibly a human being in there somewhere it is a robot you are functionally a robot you are Mm -hmm. you are a sort of human blank Mm -hmm. and the way the game plays is you are also a human blank because your entry into the story through the game mechanics in other words the way in which like the game and sort of like the entire like ring structure of the of the halo thing and the way you sort of discover what the covenant is like you don't have an ideology, like there's nothing there. You you learn what all this stuff is as you play the game. Unlike in real life, where if you join the military, you know, prior to joining the military, you have been indoctrinated by your education for, you know, upwards of 12 years, you know, more than 12 years, or just the experiences of living in a particular country or absorbing like media that, you know, gives you certain ideas of what patriotism means and how you're supposed to behave. Like that is all there before you enter into that moment. So the thing is a first person shooter to my mind is actually a poor simulation of that because what it is actually doing, it is putting you in there sort of like ex nihilo, like from out of nothing. And then you discover the, the universe and its ideology through the gameplay mechanics. So then the question is, and the reason why I wanted to use Quake is what do you discover? You discover essentially the Dr. Manhattan problem. This is what I'm gonna call it. So for those of you who don't know, in the comic Watchmen, there's this character, Dr. Manhattan, who one day is suddenly transformed into an almost godlike being. And what happens as a result of that? He actually becomes detached from humanity. In other words, he does he doesn't try to like overcome humanity, doesn't try to like become destructive or anything. He's just like, I don't understand these people anymore. I gotta leave. And that's what happens. He leaves. <laughs> he just goes away. Um, and so a similar thing happens to a person who to you as you're playing these games and you're experiencing that that power fantasy is I think you actually become detached from your human condition. And so the thing that people often argue about, you know, especially people who haven't thought it through very well, that argue about like first person shooters like Call of Duty, that these are essentially like, you know, murder simulations or like just indoctrination machines. I think actually the opposite happens. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually trying to like deplete you of any connection. And I actually think that's more sinister. Like if it were just imposing an ideology on you, that's like, okay, well then that's just like all other media, but no, actually I think it's trying to like empty you, which is a really interesting perspective. And I will have to say that from a narrative perspective, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that because if we look at Call of Duty and the Halo franchise. And Master Chief is honestly a great example because I feel that like the Halo franchise does have more of a plot-driven right, storytelling. Yeah, it does, yeah. Um, 
Well, except for like the, the most recent Call of Duty, like Call of Duty. I mean, for the, the most recent Call of Duty, right? Um, and there's also now like the Call of Duty has this uh, battle royale mode called Warzone as well. Yeah. But what Call of Duty is impl- is uh, employing, whether they realize it or not, is something in narrative we call the blank slate character. And so I'm actually going to tell you right now that what Call of Duty does for video games, Twilight did for novels. Twilight. Wow, that's gonna make a lot of people unhappy. Go, go off, girl. Go off. Yeah, I'm going. Yeah, I'm going off. Yeah. So Twilight uses um, Bella. That's her name. I was actually yep. just gonna call her by the actress, but that's incorrect because the actress yeah. is actually quite, quite great. Um, Bella in the novel is a girl who is in a, a town and is doing a things like going to school. And then suddenly out of nowhere, her life has changed because she finds a boy and this boy happens to be a vampire. And then there is the series. That's it. That's it. That's the whole series. But what's interesting about this and the reason why it resonated with so many um, young, especially young female readers was that Bella was a blank slate character and a blank slate character is someone who has truly no physical description of them within the novel. It's someone who also doesn't have any bearing or any history that the novel gives you. And also the characters say like they don't care about their history. They have a very weak backstory. They usually are missing a parent yeah. and they're very antithesis of everything that is going on to them. And yeah. third and most importantly about a blank slate character is that it is meant to force the reader into that person's like, I don't want to say perspective because the perspective doesn't exist. It's meant to self-insert the reader, right? That's what's really, really important right here is this third point is the self-insertation. Video games, when doing the blank slate character, like in Call of Duty, Quake, truly any first person shooter, is that the blank slate character is you. This means that in Twilight, and just like in Valorant, so I can get everybody really angry at me, (laughs) or more like Apex, Just like in Apex Legends, when you're playing that Battle Royale game, you are that character, which is why you truly identify when they start saying things or you really get that first kill or you become the kill leader and your banner is up there. You're like, yeah, that character is me because I'm the blank slate character. That's also why you'll see narrative really fall down in all of these titles. And by narrative, I truly, I mean more of the character driven, say hero centric storyline. It's also why titles like Overwatch have a strong hero narrative, but people wish that they had the story in the game. But the game's mechanics, the first person shooter mechanic, that first person shooters have used blank slate characters for a long history, except for maybe Deus Ex, which is, but in in a, in a nut, like, and if I'm, you're on YouTube, you can see my, well, you can (laughs) kind of tell on the podcast that I'm hesitating a little bit. Um, But this blank slate character is incredibly important. Because now in the modern age where we are watching these YouTube videos, and if you've watched the Battlefield 1 trailer, that really emphasizes the humanity of the destruction. That is the the empathy. There's an amazing line in there that says something about how like behind every gun sight is a human, right? And it's the same as Fallout's war never changes, right? (laughs) That's that line that sticks with you. So while you self-insert into the game, you've kind of, you, they want you to bring in their marketing. They want you to be a fan because they want you to bring that in versus someone like me who say never watches any of the Call of Duty trailers or never watches the Battlefield trailers, right? Their marketing has not indoctrinated me to bring in the 
right? War never changes. But what's interesting is that a lot of these games, while they have no, say, traditional storytelling methods, when you start the game, there's that cutscene. Yeah. War never changes. Whether it's a nuke, right? Or not a nuke, whether you're throwing grenades. And then that's also why when you have something that's so bizarre, like a female character on the battlefield, you get really emotional and kind of sentimental about it because now you're playing something where you were supposed to be self-inserting. Yeah. And the game is now telling you it's not you anymore because it's not about you. And that is completely and directly opposed to what the game is about. Yeah. Now, if you were only looking at it objectively, however, you're not going to see that. There should totally be women on the battlefield. And by contrast, him, there should be women on the battlefield, just so everyone clears of my yeah, stance. Yeah, so in case anyone is wondering, if you're one of those people who are like, oh, there were, there were female snipers in World War II. They were mostly Soviets, but they still existed. There were also female members of the French Resistance, like... You're you're dumb. You actually don't know history if you if you think that this is no. You actually don't know history. There was like a whole female pilot, like uh, yeah. all female pilot brigade. Um, anyway, all this being said, is because of the expectation of the mechanics, the marketing, all of this previous expectation of our players. Right? If Twilight suddenly gave Bella an amazing personality, and Bella was like, you know what, Edward, actually, screw you. I don't want to be here. And Jacob's pretty cool. But now that he's imprinted to my baby, I'm getting out because this is all way messed up. And it doesn't matter what I do anymore. It yeah. matters that who I am. And that's what games that have characters kind of look at, right? Yeah. Who I am influences what I do. But yeah. in self-insert fiction and in self-insert video games, who you are doesn't matter. Yeah. The only thing that matters is what you do. And unfortunately, like you brought up in some of these titles, what you do is killing humans and you kill enough humans so much you're desensitized to killing humans. But that's not that it's a murder simulator. It's yeah. just you're desensitized to the action. But would you actually do it in real life? I mean, there are millions of there are millions of players out there. Well, like, but well, because here's the thing is that there are different kinds of desensitization yeah. because the way in which you're desensitized, say, like, you know, in the military is essentially like you are. Because here's the point that I made earlier. You come to joining the military with a certain amount of baggage of you know who you are as a person. So there's this concept that you often see, especially amongst you know drill instructors, that they first have to they tear you down and then build you back up. So they have to first deplete you. They have to sort of remove all of those aspects of your humanity that you know would be an inconvenience in a war zone to, and then replace them with a, a new humanity that is much better suited to um, whatever it is the military wants you to do. And yet, even despite that, there's actually fairly good evidence to suggest that like when someone is sort of firing, you know, on a range, they are far more accurate than when they're firing, you know, at other people. And this isn't necessarily accounted for like, you know, their skill or like being stressed out because oftentimes there, there are like live fire exercises in the military where they simulate everything that is supposed to be happening to you at that same time. And even in those conditions, people are still um, more accurate, like by an order of magnitude. It's not a little bit like when people are firing at other people, they sort of viscerally hesitate. And that's part of being human and you, you yeah. kind of can't get rid and of it. And to be fair, like to, to go back to like what we're talking about here, it's, it's all about the sentimentality, right? Yeah. Versus the objective. 
Yeah. And it's that even when you are under those conditions or you've been trained, at the end of the day, you recognize that murder, right, and killing is wrong, right? Well, and also, if we're thinking about a game like Call ethically. of Duty. Ethically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ethically speaking. But also, if we're just thinking about it purely in terms of the game mechanics, like, you know, if you were like you're in a match and, and you're playing with your friends and things are going wrong or things are going really badly. Like you have an emotional reaction to it. People rage quit from games all the time. And that is a kind of affective reaction because the thing you may not even necessarily realize how personally invested you are getting in what is happening in the game, even if it doesn't like accurately represent your life. And it's easier to see that when it all falls apart because then you feel that sense of like frustration and anger and all of those other things. Like it's not just about sadness. It's not just about crying about your kids. It's also about these other emotions that we have that we tend to think of as sort of like, you know, more macho or whatever. Yeah. Let's get into that because yeah. looking at the self-insertion of call of duty, it sounds like you and I really are self-inserting ourselves in Dragon Age and in Takeshi and Hiroshi. Yeah. That even though those characters come with their own baggage, we truly are self-inserting and taking on that pain. Yeah. Well, the so in my in my writing about this, this is sort of the distinction I may be make between what I call first person objective and pers first person subjective. Because the thing is, there is it is possible to sort of become the blank as well. And to sort of play the game and when it ends and you're like, okay, and it has no real effective reaction to you on you. But I have noticed that there are certain kinds of games and also certain like perspectives that people bring to games where that first person sort of scenario, even as a blank, has a far more subjective relationship to the person playing than an objective one. Would you say that this is a spectrum then where something yeah, like you absolutely. could come to Call of Duty? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's not, yeah, it's not as simple as, it's not a categorical distinction. It's definitely one where like you can experience it two degrees. I think that's what I love about video games is that unlike books, you can really say this is a like first person subjective view. This is a first person objective view, which doesn't really exist in, in novels, but could, right? Um, cause that's, ep uh, ep uh epistil yeah. it's the letter writing one, epistolography. Ep no, epistolary, I think is what epistolary. Thank um, you. So no, actually first person objective and first person subjective are things that are sometimes talked about in terms of literature. A first person objective is often like, like if you have the ghost of a character talking right. about yep. them in life, but they're sort of emotionally detached from everything that happens and sort of like there's, I mean, because the, the objective um, notion implies that sort of the what you're reading is alienated from what is happening whereas yeah. the subjective which is what we traditionally as associate with first person narrative then the two are combined like what is happening and th the telling of it are married to each other whereas in an right. objective form they would be divorced from one another right no i definitely think this is a really key point because when we look at like video games that's what i absolutely love about video games is that everything that you take from traditional media yeah. like first person subjective and first person objective put that into a game and because it is interactive there is always going to be some level of subjectivity within it yeah even if like after playing you become more distanced from it because you were doing it for research or, yeah. or whatever but video games really are creating this milieu where you simultaneously can be subjective and objective about things which makes me feel a little bit better because honestly i 
am very passionate and enthusiastic, or I definitely come across that way. Yeah. But when I'm rating games about what I enjoy, I'm just kind of in the middle about everything, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, no, and I think that's the situation. Like, I enjoy everything, yeah. depending <laughs> on, right? And sometimes I, yeah. but I don't enjoy it sometimes. And so, like, I just kind of am very middle of the line, Yeah. right? Until it gets to, like do you want to be in the game world? And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> I want to escape COVID. Let's go. <laughs> well, so I, I feel think, a lot better about that. Well, I think that's actually a pretty good place to, to stop for now. We kind of arrived at a point, despite ourselves, we always do this. We always arrive at a point, even when we're not trying to. Right. And if you, well, if you live, if you listen to our podcast regularly, you realize that our style of podcasting is very much one where we're discussing with you right? And with each other, which is why your comments on YouTube and your reviews on our pod, on our Spotify or on Apple iTunes are really important yeah. to us because but until we get like something like a Patreon, we really just rely on you guys to converse and talk to us on Twitter. So please shout at us in our DMs and get back to us so we can actually, right, discuss and maybe arrive yeah. to a point with you. Yeah. So by the way, we are um, Pod on Twitter. Um, Lauren is the Lauren Ash on Twitter and I am a complete you, you just i'm usually the one running the footy dashi pod account so if you want to contact me contact because my purse okay it's at u a h s e n a a which i don't know why i chose that I'm such, <laughs> I'm such a dumb dumb anyway that's all for this week <laughs> guys um we will be back shortly but you will be back in a week um but until then um stay safe stay healthy and feel things feel things